Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. For this name drop edition, we feature need to know San Diegans, people who have shaped our region and have been shaped by it. My guest this week is Layla Aziz. Layla is the Director of Operations for Pillars of the Community, which works to improve the lives of Southeast San Diegans. She is a prison abolitionist, a community activist, and just someone who really cares about San Diego and is committed to making it better. Layla is honored in the Phenomenal Women series, a special project from the San Diego Union Tribune and the Women's Museum of California. Here's our interview. Layla Aziz, Director of Operations uh, for Pillars of the Community. Thanks so much for joining me on this name drop edition of the News Fix. Thanks for having me. So the goal today is just to get to know, you know, a person whose name we read in the news um, a little better. Uh, can you tell me a little more about um, Pillars of the Community and, and, and the issues that you work on here in San Diego, particularly Southeast San Diego? Sure. Pillars of the Community is a grassroots organization. We primarily focus in Southeast San Diego, and our goal is to decriminalize the residents and community members of Southeast San Diego. We do that through our police accountability court advocacy and our policy programs interwoven in those programs are strategic partnerships, leadership development, and of course, movement and base building to build power. Yeah, you know, you were featured in our Phenomenal Women package, um, highlighting phenomenal women from the San Diego area. And I, I read in your bio that you lost your boyfriend um, as, as a teen to gun violence. And, and that has kind of that, you know, informed your your work. Can you talk about that? It did. It shaped me. Um, I went to school in Southeast San Diego. Um, I came here in the sixth grade. So I went to Valencia Park, O'Farrell, Morris, and ultimately I graduated from Sarah. And I really didn't have violence that was that close to me until that happened. Um, I went away to college to Grambling State University. And while I was there and, you know, just dealing with the regular things that boyfriend, girlfriends deal with, particularly trying to hold on to a long distance relationship, um, he was murdered. And so for a long time that affected me because I felt as if, if I hadn't have left, um, he would have still been alive. And we also had plans to both meet in Georgia and kind of start our life over about three days before he actually was killed. So it informed my work. It um, it devastated me. It was one of the most traumatizing things I'd ever been through. And I vowed not to come back to San Diego. Um, the area where I lived was supposedly the area that the gentleman who murdered him came from. And so it was, I went to school with people from my area. So not knowing who it was, it was pretty devastating. And I came back and I noticed that my community was almost like a ghost town. Everyone who I had grown up with, um, particularly the black and brown males, um, so many of them were either dead or incarcerated with astronomical numbers. And I started to see slowly that this is not how we're going to get public safety and the change that we want. Yeah, that's that's so heavy. And I, I am sorry for your loss. Um, how, how did you heal from that, you know, and, and how did you turn it into um, your life's work? Well, for the first decade, it, it wasn't healing. It was just trauma and not really knowing um, what to do with that trauma. And as I got older, speaking with people, being able to open up therapy, um, really reading books, self-motivation, um, those things helped. 
having mentors who loved me unconditionally and helped bring out the strengths and the gifts that I had that I didn't even know I had, that helped a lot. I started working in social services when I was about 25. I had returned back to San Diego and um, I was still pretty traumatized. I was still deep in my trauma, but I began working as a youth advocate for a nonprofit. And basically I was a peer advocate who would knock on doors in my community and ask if they had young people who needed a job. And um, I worked there for about 21 years and had moved up um, from a youth advocate to a director of operations nationally, where I began to train people um, throughout the country in evidence-based best practices for um, youth coming back from incarceration and adults coming back from incarceration. And this is when reentry started started first really um, becoming a, a permanent fixture in our communities. Um, there was a change about 15, 20 years ago. And um, a lot of money started being put into reentry and rehabilitation started being looked at more closely on how you truly um, attack recidivism and help people. Yeah, how has the thinking on that changed throughout the years, you know, in integrating, um, integrating people back into society? We went for years and years and years, lock them up, lock them up, lock them up, lock them up. And then we had locked everyone up. And um, there was no rehabilitation. So the same people who were locked up would come home with the same issues, the same addictions, the same mental health issues. And then we would lock them up again. And then we said, well, three strikes, three strikes. And then we had people who were doing first degree murder sentences for stealing a bike or mm -hmm. pizza. And then um, we started seeing people dying because our prisons had become our primary mental health provider, mental health care provider. And so, and, but they weren't equipped and they didn't provide mental health, nor did they provide um, proper physical health, um, healthcare period. And so we saw people dying of things like gangrene and, and um, killing themselves and suicide. The suicide rates were astronomical until a case came and the federal government had to step in and say to California, either you empty out the prisons or we're going to come in and empty them out for you. Wow, And that's when you started seeing even those who were saying, lock them up, lock them up, lock them up, having to be forced to look at rehabilitation. Yeah, well, how do you view, how do you judge the systems here in San Diego? I mean, you know, we do see people with mental health issues, not necessarily criminals, right? Going, going through uh, jails, going through hospitals. What's your assessment of, uh, of how we're doing locally? I remember when I was younger and we would look at how um, people were cared for in mental institutions, um, people who um, were delayed, how they were cared for when they were institutionalized, how barbaric it was, how harmful it was. And thinking that we had somehow evolved out of that from the 1930s and the 1950s into truly caring for people, seeing a place for everyone in this world. Until I started looking at the prisons, all we did was shifted them with the same harm, the same trauma, um, the same abuse into just a different institution without really looking at the problem. And it starts um, from criminalizing um, minor things. Um, I work with parents who have mentally ill children and to put a person who can't function in an institution that, de that demands that you obey certain rules without medication and without proper health care is damaging. One of my moms, her son, 
received a two-year sentence, which was a low-level crime that he probably should not have gone to prison for. He's schizophrenic, and he ended up doing 20 years in solitary confinement. Wow. And those are the devastating stories that we hear and see. Well, you having done this work as a prison abolitionist, as a community builder, um, you know, what have been some of your greatest successes, but also some of the greatest challenges that you're still facing today? Some of our greatest successes have been um, just getting people to start to really talk about um, the criminal justice system. For many, many times, if you talk to families, um, they'll have someone who is currently incarcerated or has been, but it's taboo to speak about it. And so as people start coming out of the closet and, and stop feeling as though they have failed some way, and they're starting to really look at the structural issues that have led that way, and then the building and the development of the family and the community that can prevent those things. You're having people come out and say, you know what, I'm going to admit that my son has been in prison for 10 years, and I want to do something about it so that he has a chance when he comes home. And, and that's one of the biggest things is the development and the building of power within the criminal justice system, because people who had a loved one in that system had zero power 20 years ago. Um, they pretended that they weren't a part of that and that didn't affect their family. And so now that people are are admitting it and and families are getting the treatment that they need and the support that they need and they're building community with people who are dealing with the same issues they have. You've gotten things like. Prop 57 and the very, um, <laughs> the very, um, well, what, how can I say this? The bill that everyone is currently arguing over, it's, and it, it, to me, it's just, it makes no sense. We haven't given it a chance to even succeed. And that's Prop 47 that shifted low level felonies into misdemeanors. Will you talk more about, you know, that path? And so, yeah, it is a wonderful thing that um, families who have had incarcerated, people who have had incarcerated family members are able to step up and, and say it and it's less stigmatized and hopefully there's a, there's a path forward. But I mean, for somebody listening who's in that situation, who might have a loved one that's been through the system, you know, what is the path forward? Where do you even begin to uh, integrate and sort of rebuild? The biggest thing that you can do is not send a person to prison, mm -hmm. um, particularly if there's no public safety issue and you're just upset that they did something you didn't like. Um, to send them to prison is going to make you more upset because they're going to be in one of the most violent places in the world. And um, some people have said that um, California shoe, an actual POW, a prisoner of war, said that the shoe in California was worse than when he was a, a prisoner in, in the Middle East. Um, during the war, during the Iraq war. And that's how bad it is. Um, what they're gonna see when they go to prison is things that we thought were outlawed um, after the Roman gladiator games. Um, the drugs that um, they're gonna be introduced to in prison are going to be more, they're gonna be more available to them and less stigmatized than even when they were in the community. So we send an 18 year old boy to prison because he wrote on a wall, which is a misdemeanor, but we gave him an enhancement so we could send him to prison because we don't want him to be a gang member. And we send him somewhere where he has to be a gang member and then expect when he comes home that all of that's gonna disappear and wonder why the problem got worse. So that's our first step. We need to look at alternatives to incarceration because incarceration is not how we're gonna get out of this situation. Mm -hmm. It's not how we're gonna get out of crime. It's not gonna get, a, we're not gonna get out of domestic violence that way or any of those issues. But what we really need is family and community building. 
We need communities back together. We need the tools um, for conflict resolution. We need to look at society from our honor societies to our dignity societies and looking at dignity over honor. And those are things that we have to start embedding in our communities. Poverty is one of the worst feelings a person can go through. And there's been studies that if a person is perfect for the rest of their life, their chances of getting out of poverty still are very slight because they're not going to have the same educational opportunities. They're not going to have someone invest in them. They're not going to have a, a safety net to pick them up if anything goes wrong. And so we have to start looking at why in a country that says that it's so prosperous, do we have so many people who are so impoverished? And how is that dealt with and handled? And I think that's going to be huge in the way that um, this country goes forth. As far as the educational opportunities offered to anyone, um, regardless of, of where you grew up, as far as one of the best things this country did was started feeding kids at school hmm. and knowing that a hungry kid cannot study. And so we need to look at those kind of things to make sure that every one of our youth has the ability to reach their best because everyone's best isn't the same. And we really look at trauma, trauma-informed care and adverse childhood experiences, which have demonstrated to us that those are predictors of either victimization or criminality. Do you see our society moving that way, you know, offering more alternatives to incarceration and doing more uh, community building, offering more educational opportunities? Sure, restorative justice and even stronger than that, transformative justice. But we have a lot of dinosaurs that are still around. And those dinosaurs have great positions and judges <laughs> and behave. <laughs> and so they're with the lock them up, lock them up, lock them up. Because if you lock everyone up, crime will go down. If you lock everyone up, but you're going to lock up people that are innocent, you're mm -hmm. going to lock up people that shouldn't be in prison, and you're going to harm people. Um, and it's going to be barbaric what you're doing. But if you just disappear your problem, it disappears. So we need alternatives to disappearing um, the lack of mental health, um, substance abuse, and trauma. And that's where the work needs to go. So I see a lot of people um, who know that what we've done, it, if we have to spend $80,000 for a prisoner, and that's where our investment is, something's wrong. And why was that investment put there at the latter end instead of before any of these issues happened? And people understand that. Some of the dinosaurs don't or they don't care. Um, there's a lot of money that's in criminal justice. And, and um, at one point, there was a newspaper article that said, don't go to Harvard. No, don't go to Yale. Become a California correctional officer because they were making a base pay of $100,000 a year with the high school diploma. So in rural areas, their economic structure has been changed simply by the prison industrial complex. And of course, they don't want change. <laughs> and so we need to look at those different aspects and really look at where we need to be as a society. And certain people need a career change. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that about the correctional um, officers. Well, I want to switch gears here. Um, in, in these interviews, we typically have a lightning round. I know that we're pivoting from like a really serious conversation, but I do just want to ask you questions about you um, to get to know you better. And my first question for you is, um, what do you like to do when you're not working, when you're not advocating? <laughs> I like to spend time with my children. I have dogs. I love my dogs. <laughs> nice. What kind of dogs do you have? American bullies. Oh, cute. Yes. And I have twins. Identical twin boys. 
What is your favorite thing about San Diego? And what's your least favorite thing about San Diego? I love San Diego, the weather, the beach, everything, the, the, my neighbors. Um, my least favorite thing about San Diego would be, it's just expensive. Mm -hmm. The cost of living is just ridiculous. How about, do you have a pet peeve? I do have a pet peeve. My pet peeve, I think, would be um, lack of accountability um, when you're working with people. I like authenticity. I like trust. I like accountability. And I like growing, even if it's feel, if it's a little hard or rough to grow, if it's a little uncomfortable. Um, I like growth. So I think lack of accountability professionally, that's a pet peeve. And un just in my regular life, a pet peeve is somebody who probably chews with their mouth open and makes a lot of noises when they're eating. Yes, a classic. I agree with that. And as far as the other <laughs> one, I mean, you're in the perfect line of work, you know, accountability. Um, how about a hero? Who is somebody that's really made a difference in your life? That's a great question. It's, it's cumulative. It's a lot of people. Um, first and foremost, I just lost my grandmother to COVID. She would have been 94 this year. Mm -hmm. And um, she's always been my biggest um, supporter. I don't think I'd be talking to you right now if she didn't exist because I had problems growing up. And um, the community I lived with, there were a lot of different um, risk. And no matter what kind of, the, I could make the worst decision ever in this entire world. And she would still be there to help me get through that decision to reflect on that decision, but to grow from that. And I don't know why I was so blessed to have her in my life and um, to be there for me and to love me. The feeling of being loved unconditionally is one of the strongest, best feelings in the world. So I would say she's my top person. And then there's many others who have been played a supporting, a supporting cast member in my life. Mm, that's really beautiful. And, and I'm sorry uh, for your loss. Thank you. What is something, um, something on your bucket list, something that's important to you that you haven't gotten around to doing yet? There are so many things. Um, right now, my goal, and we're going to have to re revisit this next year, because I, I am one of those um, New Year's resolutions people that it, it goes away within three months. So I'm the person <laughs> they talk about. So that's my lack of accountability. But um, I want to um, go back to when I was in high school and become like a fitness guru. Mm -hmm. And I'm having a problem self-starting right now, particularly COVID was really hard on me. But getting back to that, where if I didn't work out, I would, couldn't even go to bed at one point in my life. Mm -hmm. And now it's been a year and I go to bed and I haven't even walked. Mm -hmm. So I want to get back to that. My, my dream goal is to be an Angela Bassett. That's on my bucket <laughs> list. There you go. Yes. But traveling, um, that's definitely on my bucket list. Um, there are a lot of things that are, I'm not going to jump out of a plane ever. <laughs> and um, yes, I want to start ocean swimming again though, too. Cause I used to do that when I was younger, that just swimming in the ocean. That was really fun. And I was so young. I didn't think about sharks and things that were in there. <laughs> so getting over that fear and starting to do that again. Awesome. Well, I, Angela Bassett, that's goals. I, I believe in you. What, what are some of your favorite, um, you know, physical activities to do? <laughs> they used to be to run, um, lifting weights. Um, right now, it's just getting out of bed. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I got a long way to go on my bucket list. <laughs> but um, I, I, I used to love to skate, to bike, um, to do all of those things. So I want to get back to that. Um, 
physically, I really, COVID, I don't know what it was. Psychologically, COVID really scared me. Mm-hmm. I have never been through a pandemic. Um, only things I ever hear about are things like Ebola. So then they're saying we have a pandemic here. I'm just like, we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. And so really realizing that we're not all going to die. And um, most of us are going to still be here. And I think that's going to help me kind of get through that. But it's been rough, a rough three years. Yeah, well said. Today, I think, is actually the two-year anniversary. Yes. Okay. Seems like three or four. (laughs) Doesn't it? Doesn't it? I know. Well, what what have been some of the big lessons for you during COVID? Appreciating family. Appreciating your health. Understanding what an underlying condition is and how to get rid of one. Um, looking at things, um, cause I do believe in medicine and doctors and vaccines. I believe in those two, but looking at the natural things that we can do to make those things, us having to depend on those things less like insulin and, um, prescription drugs and looking at just health, health style, healthy changes. And that's something I just recently went back to is just going pure vegan to try to just do a jump start with my body. Mm. And it's just a totally different feeling. Wow. That's amazing. I know um, I read this book recently that said, you know, the number one thing we can do for not just our health, right. But the health of the planet is to cut down on animal products. Um, But that's tough. Like, have you had a difficult time with it? I have, I've done vegan before many times. I do that on and off and it, it really, um, it changes a lot, particularly because um, I'm in the, um, category, um, black people, we have hypertension. I have high blood pressure. Um, we have diabetes. So we have certain health indicators and a lot of it is environmental, what we're able to eat, what's close to us and different things of that nature. And so if you don't have a car, you're really not going to eat that healthy. So, um, really studying those things and knowing that being conscious of those things, when I do eat vegan, it makes me feel better, but I mean, come on, a good steak is what is better (laughs) than that. There's a struggle there. For sure. Um, okay. Well, I think that concludes the the bucket list or I'm sorry, the lightning round. It, it was, it was cool to hear some of your answers. Um, I, you know, going, going back to your work, it, it's, it's so, it's so big. It's so important. You obviously really care about your community. So, you know, what are some other ways that, um, you, you would like to see San Diego change or San Diego grow and improve? That's a great question. Um, I think that we like a lot of times we're using these terms, um, they change, but social justice, racial justice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just really looking at um, why are there disparities? And as this country develops, why are there certain things in this country that we hold on to? Um, bondage and slavery being one. We have um, a ballot initiative that might be coming up just to remove slavery from our constitution or indentured servitude. Um, why are we holding on to these things? And what is in, in looking at other countries, um, the, I want to say it's NATO or United Nations, excuse me, but the Human Rights um, Commission outlawed slavery, period, and still in the United States, the 13th Amendment gives us a loophole and that's through our prisons. And um, just the United States in our, the beginnings of this country and slavery and genocide to the Native Americans, what can we do to, to make amends for the past, to understand that people didn't live hundreds of years ago, so they're not directly responsible, but understanding the institution and that responsibility there and and growing as a community 
And I don't think that growth is, we put you in last place so I can be in first place. I don't think that's the power that anyone is searching for, but the inequities, they have to stop. And um, sometimes I just meditate and I ask, I'm here at Tubman, what would you do? Hmm. Angela Davis, what would you do? Um, what would you do? Um, when we look at these things, we still kill people through the state. Um, so when we look at lynchings in the South and it's still racially, there are racial disparities in who we do um, send to the death chamber. And so I wanna continue fighting that for the people that put their lives on the line and to not stop until all of our children have the same opportunities and are looked at the same. And they're not laws that are only for them that they think they can do that and institutionalize racism, like these gang laws that only black and brown people for some reason or three youth that are together and wear the same clothes whenever youth does that. And really looking deep into those aspects and, and gutting racism and gutting sexism and gutting Islam, Islamophobia and, and, and not looking at disabled people as, as people who could be someone strong in this country um, and really looking at the strengths and the uniqueness of everyone. You know, you just mentioned lynching, and that reminds me of a headline I read the other day that it's it's finally being classified as a hate crime. Did you see that? I was I was surprised by that. I did not. Lynching is it's, it's late because lynching has evolved. When we look at that, we're looking at just pretty much it was lynchings were sanctioned, even if the government wasn't a part of it. It turned its its head when community members and many times the sheriff would be there with them, would rip people out of their homes and terrorize people and lynch them. And it really, it saddened me because there's a bill called the Racial Justice Act. And it's looking at um, if there are disparities in prosecution, then we have to look at those things and you can't hold a person accountable. And we have a really bad situation with the gang unit officer who was killed um, by, uh, I believe a community member in Shelltown. And, and that's horrible. And his family has lost a loved one. But the way that we're gonna repay that is by killing the other person and saying that murder is wrong. And I just have a problem with that. I believe murder is wrong. And so therefore I can't believe it's wrong one way and not the other. And um, we tried to use the Racial Justice Act to, to see if we could save his life. Um, not, he would still go to prison for the rest of his life, but to save his life from the death chamber, to be, from being a person who, who just murdered someone. And um, the judge said, no, he wouldn't even hear my testimony. And this is the judge who I read years ago has, um, I believe it's tape that he keeps on his robe for every person he sent to the death chamber, to the death, um, to the electric chair or to lethal injection. He's proud of that. And that's why I say these dinosaurs, <laughs> because to me that's barbaric and horrific. Hmm. And it's the same as someone throwing someone in a pit with a lion and telling them to fight. And everyone looking and going, ooh, ah, when are we gonna get over that? And that violence is violence. What are your thoughts on reparations in California specifically? I believe the federal government should be the spearhead of reparations. Um, California, there's definitely documented cases of redlining, um, even up until when I was born, um, where we live in a certain, we, I live in Southeast because that's all the only place we could live. And regardless, um, that's all we, where we could be. And every black person, regardless of income um, or anything, we were all boxed into one community because we're black. And so California has its issues um, and it's harm that it's done on many levels to black people. So reparations definitely, I believe is in order, but on a federal level, I believe reparations is in order. And that's because of the, the federal government. And most of us, we came through the South as slaves. 
And so the federal government allowing that, um, and and we could be sold from state to state, from Louisiana. So you have a, a you're 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 selling people across state lines, and the fact that this institution was utilized for so long, and everyone in the United States benefited from from it. There weren't a large number of slave owners, but the benefit because of this labor and cotton and bringing America into a a, a first world status um, due to its exportation of of this material that slaves were producing, um, or this raw. Um, fiber that slaves were producing to send to England for the textile mills. Um, there, there's been no compensation to the for the beatings, for the starving, for the amputations, for the families that were split apart. And then after that, you, you go directly into um, Jim Crow, and you're told separate but equal, but nothing's equal. And and that's institutionalized um, in the government for for many years. And and these southern states, even though they're part of the federation, they were allowed to do so. Where at by the time things were over, the black people owned more land directly after slavery during Reconstruction than they own now, and that says a lot. And a lot of us have stories. I have stories. My uncle was illiterate, but he worked. He just wasn't allowed to read, and his land was taken um, by a white person. And we'll never get that back. And that's something that many black people we talk about in our personal stories when we're at Thanksgiving or with other people of just the horrors and the atrocities that have happened. And no one has ever said they just say, "Okay, oh well, next generation." And then something else happens. They say, okay, okay, we didn't do good then, but next generation, but no one's willing to say how much has been lost and how America wealth is built on, on land and how Native Americans and Africans, how that has been pretty much taken from us and to pretty much make us in a class of poverty generation after generation and then to be told that we don't work hard enough and we're not smart enough and we're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps is, is something that this government needs to confront. And I believe very strongly in reparations. I think we don't hear this as often anymore because people have become more educated on the topic, but what is your response to people who say we live in a post-racial society? <laughs> Go to prison. And, and probably people in um, during Jim Crow said the same thing. Hmm. People who lived in the North and um, new slavery didn't exist anymore, said they lived in a post-racial society. And a lot of times, and not until um, televisions brought them pictures of little boys being attacked by police dogs and hoses because people wanted to be able to sit in the front of a bus, that people have to really um, look at reality. And so if, you, if you're far away and you hide reality for people and you're not very close to the, to the communities that are most impacted, you will think that. But then you have to ask yourself, why were so many black men put in prison and ripped from their families for marijuana when white people are the majority and didn't and consumed marijuana at the same rate as we did? And you tell me how we live in a post-racial society. We were put in cages for that. We were given three strikes for that. I know people who did 15 years for a $15 bag of marijuana. And tell me how is that post-racial? And tell me how a child grows up without their father because he went to prison for marijuana and now it's legal and no one wants to give reparations for that either. Yeah. Well said, you know, that remind you mentioned privilege. It's like, you know, privilege is when you don't believe something's a problem because it's not a problem to you personally. Right. And it's easy to, uh, to overlook or downplay, but up to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I, I've taken up more than of your time than I promised to. Um, I just have one last question for you, which is, you know, your your work again. It, it's it's expansive. It's important. It's it's serious. It's multifaceted. And I know that these problems you're trying to solve can't be solved in like a single uh, brushstroke. But I mean, is there any low hanging fruit? Are there any small changes that we, you know, a, as a society, could be making to make a dent in some of these issues? That's a great question. I think one of the things is really looking at, in Pillars, we really came out when we saw 33 young Black men arrested and given life. And the DA district attorney, the DA said, um, I know they didn't commit the crime. Many of them didn't know about the crime. They had nothing to do with the crime. But I want to see if I can give them life for being documented as a gang member. And then we looked at, how are you documented as a gang member? Oh, you, look in, you live in a certain community. And if you have on a certain color, many times it's your school colors, or if you're with someone who's already documented, we can document you and you can never fight that. There's no due process. And then looking at some of the laws that the Supreme Court and the courts are still upholding on now, it's okay, we're going to still do the same thing to you, but we're going to say you're an associate because we can't put you under gang documentation. That's something that we can all get involved with right now. Looking at the disparities, looking at why only why 97% of the people are who are documented in California are, and it's even higher in San Diego, are black and brown people. Looking at what it, what makes a gang the legal definition and how every single teenager fits into that. And looking at then why are we giving black and brown people five to 25 to life more time than other people based on an institutionalized racist system and that's gang documentation if you do something wrong you pay for it why are black and brown people paying a heavier price and where a kid can commit a misdemeanor and go to prison so that's something people can do now Layla thank you so much for spending time with me thank you uh, for the work that you do thank you have a great one Thank you again for listening to this name drop edition of the San Diego News Fix. We'll be back on Monday.